Hello, everyone. I am Isabel Trick. I'm an associate director in the global macro team at Global Council. This is the third episode of our new podcast series at GC, the global month ahead. So what we're doing here is that at the beginning of each month, I will get together with different colleagues across GC and delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments that are taking place in the month ahead. What you can expect is essentially a focus on issue with broader geopolitical or economic importance. And what we're trying to do is make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. What we're doing today, we're looking at the US midterm elections, the G20 Leader Summit in Indonesia, and the COP27 Climate Conference. To start us off, I'm going to start with my colleague Robert Etter. He's a director at Global Council after he spent 13 years in various um, senior roles in the White House, in the US Senate, and the US House of Representatives, and he's part of our US team. So what we're talking about today is the US midterms, which are taking place on Tuesday, November the 8th. And we're really entering the final stretch now before the midterms. So it's going to be important for us to understand where do things stand now with just days to go, who currently seems to have the upper hand, and what should we expect in that potential lame duck congressional session after the midterms. Robert, you were already on our first episode, and then it seemed like over the summer, the Democrats may have had gained a bit of momentum. But it sounds like that may have changed. So talk me through this. So what is the political state of play in the US as we come closer to election day? And how have those dynamics changed over the recent weeks? Uh, well, it's been the case all along this election cycle that historical trends have favored the Republicans as the minority party. Presidents tend to lose seats in their first midterms, particularly in recent instances where there's been unified government. We saw Democrats lose 63 seats, House seats in 2010. Uh, during Obama's first term, and Republicans lose 40 House seats in 2018 during Trump's first term. Uh, and recent economic conditions have favored Republicans as the minority party as well, high inflation, high prices, fears of a recession. But coming out of the summer, as you uh, alluded to, it really felt like Democrats had a lot of momentum heading into the thick of campaign season. The Democratic base was motivated by the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, they passed some major legislation in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the CHIPS Semiconductor Bill, and a few other items. Republicans were fielding some relatively weak candidates. But the polling in recent weeks seems to have shifted back toward the Republicans. They seem to be gaining ground in key Senate races. And I think the predominant view now is that Republicans have the momentum going into the home stretch. In reality, I think we're sort of fundamentally in the same place we've been all along in the sense that Republicans are and have been favored to win the House. And the Senate is basically a toss-up that's going to come down to a few tight races in key swing states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and a few others. Now, the number of House seats that Republicans uh, may gain might be up for debate. Uh, the accuracy of some of the polling might be up for debate, but I think the fundamental dynamic that Republicans are likely to win the House remains intact. And if that happens, that will usher in divided government for the first time under President Biden, and it will fundamentally uh, change the dynamic in Washington. That's really interesting. So it does sound like that's maybe that summer of optimism the Democrats may have had may have been more blip on the on the radar rather than a true kind of change of the fundamentals that the minority party always is in a slightly better position going into the midterms. Given that Republicans are likely to gain the upper hands in the midterms, in the House more likely than in the Senate, but even in the Senate it does sound like that is more likely than not. What do we expect to get done 
um, at the end of the year during the kind of lame duck congressional session, are we potentially seeing the end of unified democratic control of government? Well, there's always a bit of a December legislative rush, particularly at the end of a Congress uh, when you have unified control of government like we have here. Uh, a few things to watch uh, watch for at the end of the year. First, government funding. The U.S. government is currently funded under a temporary, what's called a continuing resolution uh, that was enacted in September and that runs through December 16th. So that's the deadline on that front. The question for December is whether Congress can agree to a full year funding deal through the end of next September, or whether they have to enact another short-term extension into early next year, which would set up a funding battle between President Biden and what's expected to be a new Republican majority in Congress. Uh, The National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, uh, is another item to watch at the end of the year. This is the annual cornerstone bill for U.S. defense policy. It's bipartisan. It's been enacted every year for 61 years. We expect this year will be no different. Mm, I imagine, especially kind of in the light of Ukraine and the current tensions we we are seeing. Yes. And the House passed its version of NDAA in July. The Senate's expected to take uh, take up its version of the bill after the midterms. Uh, And as you mentioned, it will be particularly interesting to watch given uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, It will provide a forum for debate on the U.S. response, and we could see consequential and controversial Uh, amendments on the topic as well. Aside from NDA and government funding, I'd also expect to see some action on some smaller legislative items that are uh, really member and committee priorities, along with a flurry of confirmations as Congress closes out uh, in December as well. If Democrats lose control of the Senate, they'll want to confirm as many nominees as possible before the end of the year, since those would slow down uh, dramatically under Mm. a Republican Senate. All right. So it certainly looks like we're going to have an intense December where we might see some of the kind of last last hurrah almost of the Biden government. Because then if we're going into a divided government in the US next year, what can we even expect? Um, should we expect from Congress that they um, might really kind of be more engaged in battle over some really critical issues? Are there any issues we should be paying particularly close attention to? I think especially there was the question of raising the US debt limit. One thing that's finally getting uh, more attention in recent days, and deservedly so, is the U.S. debt limit, which is likely to be hit at some point next year. The debt limit has to be raised in statute in the U.S., so a law has to be enacted to do it. And if the debt limit is breached, it could have hugely significant economic consequences. Uh, I suspect at times, particularly for those who, who may not follow U.S. politics really closely, there may be some confusion over the debt limit versus government funding. They are different. If the government isn't funding, if the government isn't funded, if funding lapses, uh, the result would be a government shutdown. We've seen government shutdowns occur with greater frequency in recent years. Uh, it can be a short shutdown or it can be a long shutdown, but it ends with a deal to fund the government and get the government back open and running. Shutdowns can certainly hurt the economy, but don't have nearly the impact a default on the debt limit would have. The debt limit, on the other hand, is the statutory ceiling on the amount Treasury can borrow to pay bills that have already been incurred based on policy decisions that have already been made. So it's essentially about the U.S.'s ability to pay its bills. Unlike a government shutdown, the U.S. has never defaulted on the debt limit. We came close in 2011. There was a standoff between President Obama and House Republicans led by uh, the Speaker of the House at the time, John Boehner. A deal was reached at the 11th hour. 
but even just the brinksmanship resulted in the first ever downgrading of the U.S. credit rating. Markets suffered their worst and most volatile weeks since the 2008 global financial crisis. The debt limit were to be breached, which again has never happened, we'd be looking at severe consequences for both the U.S. and even the global economy. According to the White House, a default would likely cause a financial crisis and recession, GDP would fall, unemployment would rise, mortgage and credit card interest rates could increase, and so on. And as I mentioned, raising the debt limit next year has to be done legislatively and in divided government that will take bipartisan cooperation. With Republicans very likely to take over the House of Representatives, the potential for brinksmanship or even default is probably at its highest point since that 2011 uh, debt limit crisis. In addition to the debt limit itself being hugely consequential, any legislative deal that's reached to raise it could be hugely significant as well. The 2011 debt limit deal resulted in the Budget Control Act, which capped and, and really changed the trajectory of government spending for over for a decade. Uh, Republicans are already talking about concessions they want to extract from Democrats in exchange for raising the debt limit, whether it's a new round of spending caps or other structural reforms on spending or entitlement reforms on Social Security or Medicare. Democrats are already attacking Republicans over this. And so the debt limit fight has already begun uh, in a sense. Uh, there's been some discussion that Democrats might try to deal with it uh, during the lame duck, but given the calendar mm. and the politics, that it's might hard be tight. To, yeah, it's mm. hard to see a path uh, for it to get done before the end of the year. Right now, the debt limit is projected to hit around the second half of next year. The deadline can be a bit of a moving target, uh, depending on things like economic conditions, tax receipts, uh, things like that. So this is likely to be a hugely consequential fight next year uh, and one that could have lasting impacts. And if you set aside the debt limit, uh, you know, I think with divided government and a conservative house, I wouldn't expect much in terms of major legislation getting passed, at least along the lines of what we've seen this year and last year. I think you'll see a lot of House Republican investigations of the Biden administration on things like immigration and the border or the Afghanistan withdrawal, COVID response, or other investigations designed to try to uh, damage President Biden heading into the 2024 presidential election. There will be some legislation that moves, particularly bipartisan bills that are expiring or need to be reauthorized, like the Farm Bill, which is due to be reauthorized next year. There are a handful of issues where we've seen some bipartisan interests, like on China and on some tech issues like data privacy and antitrust. Those are worth keeping an eye on. But in general, I don't expect the environment to be very conducive to mm. a lot of uh, major legislation getting passed. And the last thing I'll mention uh, that's worth watching closely next year is implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. With divided government, the Biden administration will be eager to implement that law and to get funding out the door. President Biden has brought in John Podesta. He's a former White House chief of staff uh, to President Clinton. He's a former counselor to President Obama. Uh, he's going to oversee implementation of the, uh, of the bill's $370 billion in clean energy tax credits and incentives. They'll be very focused on that, and it's something to follow closely. The question around a U.S. debt limit, I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating one for us and our clients to watch because we're already in a situation where if the global economy is in dire straits. So if we're then going to have an additional hit to one of the world's largest economies, this has got to cause untold additional problems. So I think um, something we'll all be keeping a, a very close eye on. In a way, this is quite a nice segue because we're talking about another body that has been somewhat paralyzed over the last year. I'm uh, joined by my colleague, Daddy Donato. He's an associate in our Singapore office. 
Over the last seven years, Daddy has been working on South Asian politics with a special experience um, in Singapore and Indonesia. And he's actually coming to, to us today from Indonesia, which is very topic appropriate because we are talking about the G20 Leader Summit, which is about to take place in Bali on November the 15th. And I think this is particularly interesting this year. I followed the last um, financial and central bank governors meeting of the G20 a couple of weeks ago. And the G20 really likes to describe itself like as the premier forum for economic issues. And it does comprise over 80% of world GDP, but it's had a really, really tough year to say the least. And some are saying it's facing a proper crisis of credibility because it's not been able to do much in the last year because there has been this internal deadlock. And why is that the case? It is because the road towards the G20 summit, where we're going to see all the leaders of the G20 nations coming together, has really been overshadowed by um, tensions between the different G20 members. On the one hand side, we've got Russia, Ukraine, because Russia is a G20 member. But we also have tensions between the US and China, and more recently, um, the US and Saudi Arabia over the OPEC oil production cut. And that has even impacted the question of who is even going to come to the summit. So maybe to kick us off with an easy question, Daddy, I'd be really curious to hear what we know about the attendance. Do we expect all G20 leaders to, to be there? Are they going to be there in person? Are we going to see any big um, kind of abstentions? Do we expect Putin to be there, for instance? Putin's uh, attendance is doubtful. Um, in August, he said that he will come to the G20 summit, but now... Um, recently, he said he's considering his attendance, so it really remains to be seen uh, on Putin's attendance. Uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, uh, has not confirmed uh, his attendance, according to Indonesia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But, of course, our benchmark is that uh, he had never attended an international event in person since the beginning of the war. So uh, I expect uh, Zelensky's attendance uh, to be uh, unlikely. For uh, U.S. President Biden, um, he, he said he has no attention to sit down with Putin at G20. But of course, he said that uh, he's okay to meet with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, at the summit. Uh, of course, uh, on the China side, uh, after securing a third term as a party chief, uh, Xi Jinping will likely travel south to Indonesia for G20 summit and then continue to Thailand for the apex. Thanks very much, Daddy. I think it's going to be, if Putin does decide to attend, it's going to be a really difficult situation for the Indonesians to manage. Because I'm not really sure how many of the, especially the Western leaders, but also the kind of Western aligned countries, you would really see willing to sit down into a room with Putin at the table. That's really not happened since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I guess to stay on this topic of geopolitical tensions, it's really been a tough go for Indonesia. It's the first time they've held the G20 presidency. So do you see kind of any signs of de-escalation as we're heading really into summit preparation period? Or do you think things have been pretty much the same or will be pretty much the same as they have been the last few months? I think the situation is pretty much the same now. Uh, and the great power conflict between China and the United States as well as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, will continue to overshadow the summit. And of course, if Putin decides to attend, um, Russia will likely wield power in a G20 summit using its control over the UN United Nations brokered green export deal. And of course, member countries who are dependent on um, grains uh, import will likely persuade Russia to extend uh, the exports. Yeah, because I think that deal is expiring just after the summit, isn't it? I think it's around the 19th of November that that grain deal does expire. Right, you are correct. 
And so uh, I think that will be one aspect that member countries will try to persuade Russia. And, and, but of course, it really depends whether Putin will attend uh, the G20 summit. On U.S. and its uh, G7 allies, um, they will continue to push the oil price cap agenda, uh, which they want to impose on Russia so they, they can prevent Russia from gaining super profit from its uh, oil export. So looking at all the conflicts and tension, I think the G20 summit will likely result in a failures uh, as both the APEC trade ministers meeting in May uh, and the APEC finance and central bank governors meeting in October, uh, in which both meeting um, resulted without any joint statement. So I think that uh, will set as precedence for what we can expect in the G20 summit. Yeah, what a tricky situation, because um, normally this is really an opportunity for a country who holds the presidency to essentially set the agenda of the G uh, G20 for, for a whole year and get some interesting agreements and kind of find common ground on these issues important to them. But it doesn't sound like they're going to have much of a much of a chance of overcoming some of these very fundamental tensions that are going to be at play at the summit. But you are currently in Indonesia, so I'd be curious to hear a bit more about how you think the Indonesia, Indonesian government has handled the presidency this year, despite those setbacks, and how are they kind of looking with the preparations ahead of the summit? How have they handled this? Yes, uh, I think the Indonesian government uh, tries to use the momentum to sort of like prioritize their uh, national economic agenda. So I think uh, the way to look at this is that um, Indonesia will face challenges to sort of like, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, try to sort of bridge uh, the, in, the differing interests between the conflicting parties in a G20. But of course, Indonesia will try to push forward their national agenda. From the ground, uh, what I can see is that the Indonesian government will try to uh, use the G20 summit to push forward on you know promoting their key economic agendas it includes uh, you know promoting the use of electric vehicles some ev companies uh, including hyundai wuling and electrum have already provided electric cars and bikes uh, to facilitate the, the delegations and participants in the g20 summit in bali and then uh, they, they also try to demonstrate their progress on the digital economy transformation uh, they work together with uh, Meta to exhibit uh, Metaverse during the summit. And the third item is that they, they, they'll try to promote their you know, products by micro, small and medium enterprises in which they work together with MSME associations in preparing the exhibitions uh, of local products. Uh, besides prioritizing its national interests, we can see that Indonesia is actually quite successful in making significant progress uh, in consolidating the Financial Intermediary Fund, uh, which is uh, aimed at tackling any future global health emergencies. So at this point, the key challenge is only whether Indonesia can persuade more countries, including Russia, to contribute to the FIF. Absolutely. And I mean, you're right. I tend to sometimes be a bit um, pessimistic. Maybe that's because I'm German. We have a habit of being slightly uh, <laughs> slightly pessimistic about the world. <laughs> but you are, right. there are some interesting developments that um, Indonesia has really been able to push on. And the Financial Intermediary Fund, I think, is a really um, interesting example of that. And it'd be interesting to see how much more they can do on this um, the summit. 
And equally, being able to showcase some of the priorities of their own kind of national economic agenda, like a support of EVs um, to showcase their seriousness about the energy transition agenda, I think we should definitely see as wins for, for the Indonesians. And as we've said, it's not been an easy year. So who we will see take over from the Indonesians at the end of November is the Indians. So New Delhi will take over the G20 presidency from um, Jakarta. And what's particularly interesting that following in India's footstep will then be Brazil. And after Brazil, we will have South Africa take over the G20 presidencies. So quite interesting to see kind of countries that are not part of the kind of G7 club really take the helm of the G20. But maybe just to quickly stay on India for a moment, do you have any sense of um, what the Indian priorities might be um, going into their G20 presidency? Or do you think they're going to face some of the same challenges as the Indonesians with their own presidency? Well, I don't have a very detailed answer to that. But I think uh, more or less uh, India uh, being a non-airline country, as official statements try to express, um, will likely encounter uh, similar challenges if both the war in Ukraine and the great power conflict between China and the United States continue. And I think uh, India may face an even more challenging situation because its diplomatic relationship with China is not really well. Border conflict continues uh, to be a stumbling block between the two countries. And on the other hand, India has been importing oil from Russia, and I think this will likely be a liability for India when facing pressures from the United States and its Western allies. For our third segment, I'm joined by my colleague Felicity Hall. She's an Associate Director in the Climate and Sustainability Practice, and she's specifically focused on ESG issues. Felicity is actually going to go to Egypt to attend COP27 in person and support some of our clients. So, in the last few weeks, we've heard a lot about who is not going to COP. There was big hoo-ha in the um, UK about whether or not Rishi Sunak was attending. And we've heard that some of the big kind of finance players, BlackRock, Citigroup, might not be sending their CEOs this year, which might kind of indicate that this COP doesn't have as much momentum. But maybe before we jump into those types of questions, I'd be really keen for you to maybe just give some of our listeners a bit of an introduction to COP, like what is COP, what is happening in the next few weeks in Egypt? Well, um, so COPs are, you know, to start with the basics, they're really the highlight of the climate change policy calendar. Um, they take place every year um, and they're run by the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, and really the sort of, I guess, the easiest way to characterise the COP process and what COP is like on the ground is that it's a bit of a tale of two cities. So at the core of COP, you have the climate change discussions, the negotiations that are taking place between countries. And this is essentially where 196 different parties are brought together to make decisions to support the world in combating climate change. Um, decisions made at COP and create binding commitments, which are then implemented at a regional and a national level. So perhaps most famously at COP21 in Paris, the Paris Agreement was signed with the goal to limit global warming to well below two degrees, preferably to 1.5 degrees, um, to adapt to the impacts of climate change and to mobilise money to deliver on these aims. And then each COP since then has basically sought to make progress on the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, and this is very much at the core of discussions and negotiations which take place throughout the two weeks which COP runs. 
So that's kind of like the, the first city, if you like. And then the second aspect of pop is really sort of more, I guess, on the fringes. You've got loads of different events going on. Um, there's lots of events being run by businesses, by NGOs, by wider stakeholders. And many use COP as basically an opportunity to launch new commitments, uh, to set in motion new initiatives, and to just have those kind of important conversations where you've got everyone that you want to have in the room, in the room, in person, um, about sort of how we're going to tackle climate crisis. All right. So we really have two parts to COP. We have the official part where the um, official members of the UNFCCC are engaging in the official negotiations and we have the fringe parts. And you said essentially everyone has been trying to make progress on the Paris Agreement and kind of gather, gather the momentum that we um, have maybe been missing ever since then because I don't think any COP has ever really surpassed COP21 in Paris. So what are we expecting um, to be the outcome of this like COP27? Are we expecting anything as grand as a new Paris Agreement or are we really hoping for incremental progress? Yes, it's really, it's, it's the latter camp. It's that incremental progress. Um, so each COP really has a slightly different feel to it. Um, and this is driven both by which COP it is in the cycle. So there are sort of, there are big COPs and little COPs, if you like. There's ones that have sort of stock takes and, and sort of very important things that are negotiated. And there's ones that are more sort of incremental working on, um, working on sort of chipping away at, at the agreements that have been made. Um, but also, you know, how the COP feels is driven by who holds the COP presidency. Um, so each year, the presidency of, of the COP rotates. Um, this year it's an African COP and Egypt is holding the presidency with everything taking place in, in Sharm el-Sheikh as we, as we discussed at the start. Um, so because it's an African COP, basically what that means is that there's a real shift in focus towards those issues which matter in particular for developing countries. So more specifically, Egypt has called this an implementation plus COP. Basically, by this, they mean that the, the focus will be on implementing the commitments which were made at COP26 last year in Glasgow, but also going beyond these and going further to bring forward new commitments too. So in addition to that sort of framing of this as an implementation plus COP, Egypt also have their own priorities for the negotiations. Um, so these are really focused firstly around finance and basically going further in holding developed countries to account to deliver on their commitment to mobilize $100 billion a year in climate finance for developing countries. And this is a target that has been persistently missed. Um, secondly, the sort of second big issue that they want to make progress on in, in the negotiations is around adaptation and loss and damage. Um, so as we know, Africa is one of the most sort of vulnerable continents in the world to the impacts of climate change. And developing countries want sort of more support and more cooperation to help them adapt to these impacts. Um, so one of the key things that we're going to be seeing negotiations on is, for example, whether to establish a dedicated loss and damage fund, something which they've struggled to make progress on in, in previous COPs. That's really interesting. And I mean, the $100 billion a year climate finance target for developing countries is something that was raised consistently, for instance, during the um, United Nations um, General Assembly or during the IMF and World Bank meetings, especially African um, leaders and kind of climate and finance ministers, but also ministers from other um, less developed countries have really been hammering that point home. So I think that's definitely something we're going to keep, um, keep our eyes on. But I want to talk more about what you mentioned in terms of how every COP has a different feel. And I guess that also applies to... Um, the wider context, I guess last year COP was really 
still a COP that dealt with COVID that had been delayed by COVID. But this year, it's a very different um, political, but also economic climate. So how do you think that's going to impact on the COP agenda? So, I mean, as with all big conferences, naturally, there will be the political context in which these discussions are taking place. And, and those will, of course, feed into the kind of issues that people are raising and, and what's basically on the forefront of people's minds. So, as you said, Isabel, last year, the focus was really on sort of pandemic recovery and especially on sort of how to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic in a more sustainable and more green way and how we could sort of transition the world and, and sort of um, get back on our feet, basically, but do it in a way that, that was green and sustainable. Naturally, this year, the focus will be more around issues of economic instability and also the sort of interrelated food and energy crises and how each of these issues fit with policy to address climate change. So to, to make that a little bit more concrete in terms of how that will feed into the negotiations and, and the broader discussion around COP as well, um, you know, whilst a, a recognition, for example, of the impacts of fossil fuel dependence has resulted in some countries boosting efforts to scale renewables, energy security concerns have significantly reduced the likelihood of any global agreements on coal phase out at this COP. Um, another good example is that COP27 will also be the first UN climate conference to host a pavilion on food system change. So you can see how some of these crises are sort of feeding in to the, the sort of setup and the structure of the conversations that are going to take place over the course of the few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. You can really see how Russia's invasion of Ukraine probably really impacts on two of these issues that you uh, mentioned, both in terms of fossil fuel reliance and how willing or unwilling people might be to make kind of more bold moves away from um, fossil fuels and how maybe kind of gas concerns in Europe will impact um, investment and interest in renewables. But also, of course, we really have seen the devastating impact on um, on food security across the world. And so it's not surprising that this is going to be a major focus and hopefully something where we can see progress. Maybe as a last point, um, personally, I think this it sounds fascinating. I'd be very jealous and I'd actually love to join you in going to COP. But why should kind of our business community care? Like we, I mentioned earlier, BlackRock said they're not going at the senior levels and not sending their CEO. Citigroup isn't. Like, why do you think this matters to, to businesses? Yeah. So, I mean, as I, as I sort of opened with at the start, COP is the main climate event of the year. It's where sort of everyone comes together where you both sort of look forward to, to the commitments that we need to, to make to decarbonize and to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. But also we, we look we look retrospectively as well and we take stock on the, the progress that's that's been made. Um, so if I'm a, a business and, and looking sort of from the outside in here, you know, it's really it's when many of the key climate policy decisions are made. And these decisions can significantly affect companies and, and investors, too. So if we take COP26 and, and the outcomes of, of Glasgow last year as an example, we saw agreement on uh, the rules of international carbon trading. We saw new global standards for climate reporting being announced, which are going to set a baseline for how companies report on, on ESG issues. And we saw significant focus on things like nature, and things like deforestation and, and the kind of pledges and commitments that we need to put in place to address these issues. Um, and these are all things that, you know, it's really critical for companies to be to be following the conversation closely, to be understanding how the negotiations and the agreements reached at COP may impact their business or impact their investments. Um, so it's really important that, that businesses are, are following this 
um, and following the developments of pop. But I think there's also a, there's a broader question here as well. If I'm a, a business um, looking at, at COP27 this year and, 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 and what comes out of it, and this is also sort of looking at um, future COPs and sort of those, those future commitments that we're likely to see. Um, so we know, for example, that, that COP28, um, which is due to take place in UAE next year, will be the next sort of major COP. I sort of mentioned at the start that there, there are sort of more significant stock take COPs than others. And, and COP28 is going to be the first of these where we really sort of take stock um, and have an assessment of how parties have done to deliver against those three goals under the Paris Agreement. And because of this, we can really expect COP28 to have even more media attention, even more political focus around those formal outcomes. So I think as a business, you know, watching what comes out of COP27 and, and looking ahead to COP28 and thinking about how you sort of prepare your business for those kind of outcomes that we're going to see is really important. Absolutely. I think that makes total sense. It's important to have a seat at the table. Otherwise, the conversation will happen without you. And I'm already looking forward to talking to you about COP28 when the time comes. But essentially, that brings us to the end of our third episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. We're clearly looking at a really interesting November. In the US, we're essentially seeing a massive change. We are probably going to see Democrats lose control of Congress, which is going to mean a very difficult next two years for the Biden administration and possible paralysis. In Indonesia, we're going to see G20 leaders gather and the Indonesian presidency really trying to create sort of a last hurrah and trying to make an impact on their presidency. And in Egypt, we have COP27, where we're going to see a big focus on implementation and issues such as food security. So I said this last time, that's not really a good news podcast per se, because we do talk about a lot of relatively negative developments. But I think looking at COP is a more positive note. And the good news is that we will be back at the beginning of each month to give you another look ahead if you liked our discussions today. As always, to end on, if you, your business or your investments are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find all of our contact details and the contact details of our presenters and the sectoral teams either on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you, Robert, Daddy and Fliss, and thanks you all for listening.